It's come at last. After being published in August of 1996, The Tower of Joy hit, hit the screen. One wonders if George R. R. Martin ever even imagined the possibility at the time. Decent chance he did, given how much he wrote for TV, but it was probably just that, imagination. Like, what would it be like if this was on TV? It probably wasn't a serious consideration. He probably didn't expect his epic to be back, to be adapted. I mean, after all, this is the mid-90s when we didn't even have something like Lord of the Rings on the screen. It probably seemed almost impossible. So, And let alone the CGI and production costs and state of cable TV at the time, it just didn't really suggest the possibility at all. And what of us all? I think we had all mostly figured out that if we did see The Tower of Joy, it would be in a brand flashback. I think we figured that out pretty early. Eventually it became clear that was exactly what we'd get, especially prior to this season when there was casting news and hints that the Tower of Joy scene was being filmed, and more and more those rumors came to, to light, proving that it was not just that, not a rumor. Now, like in, rather fast forward to now, not only was this scene long anticipated, but it was placed in an episode full of fan service lines, which is always fun. Like in episode two, Bran wants more of the visions the three-eyed blood raven shows him, just like we do. Jamie wants to see Ungregor, aka the Kyborg, fight in a trial by combat, just like we do. And even Gilly talks about how eager she is to see Old Town, just like we are. As usual, the early parts of the season tend to be setting up the big conclusions at the end of the season. But as the story grows larger and more epic, these setups seem to grow in the same manner. Now, in season one, we had conflict between Stark and Lannister, but it was arguing, not violence, at least at this point in the season, the early part. There was no open war, and no Starks had died by, say, episode three. Jon was new at the Wall and had to deal with bullies for brothers instead of traitors for brothers, and the disillusionment of what being a brother of the Night's Watch really means. Yet five years slash seasons later, despite so much change in plot progression, much is familiar thematically. John is having an existential crisis and may not even have Night's Watch brothers anymore, declaring that his watch has ended. And the Trueborn Starks, well, we're still seeing horrible things happen to them, a lot like in season one. John, like Ned, did radical but honorable things and paid the price. Rickon lost his wolf, not unlike Sansa did so long ago. Now, Danny returns to where it all began for her, to the place she married Khal Drogo and began the journey that led to the birth of her dragons. Quaith's prophecy is coming true. To go forward, she's having to go back. Of course, the person who's really going back is Bran. So welcome back to History of Westeros podcast, and welcome back as well, Radio Westeros. Thanks for joining us again, Lady Gwen and Yoke Boy. Say hello. Hey, very excited to be here to talk about this episode today. Yeah. Yeah, really glad to be back. Looking forward to it. Right on. So, let's get let's let's go through some initial impressions. At the end of the episode, we'll give it a 1 to 10 rating. But for now, let's just talk about initial impressions from more of a vague standpoint. We'll start with you, Lady Quinn. I think it was very exciting, obviously. There's some things that, as you said, we've waited a long time to see. And even the smaller plot lines um, showed us some good and interesting developments, taking stories where where we think we know where we're going with a few of these things. Right on. Yoke Boy, what about you? Yeah, I thought it was a good episode. Perhaps not quite as good as last week. I thought there was a few slow parts, 
But, you know, this is three episodes in, they still seem to be setting things up. So we'll expect some payoffs later on. But overall, I enjoyed it. How about comparing it to, at this point, last season? Would you say better than three episodes into season five or better three episodes into season six? I am enjoying this season a whole lot more than last season. Yes, exactly. Ditto. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Yeah, me too, actually. I'm there too. Part of it's the unknown territory, but part of it is, I think it's just better. I think it's just higher quality so far. So that's great. So let's talk about the name of the episode, which is Oathbreaker. There's a lot of themes. When we when I talked about this with Sean during our show-only review, I missed quite a few of these. I'm usually a little more on top of this, but you all out there caught a lot of what I missed and sent us some good emails and tweets and Facebook messages to catch us up on what we might have missed. And, of course, Radio Estra's team threw in a few as well, so I'll run through them real quick. John and the Wall Traders, that's pretty straightforward. There's some oath, situ- oath talk at the Tower of Joy. I don't know if anyone there is breaking an oath. Of course, in a sense, the Kingsguard were accusing Robert of being an oathbreaker by being a, a rebel. And all those guys were rebels. So there's a bit of a theme there. Arya is, of course, lying to the Faceless Men. She's getting better and better at learning from them and is using what they've taught her to lie to them. Danny broke the rules of the Dosh Killeen by not retiring... Uh, to be a crone. <laughs> I can see why she did that, but technically she did break the rules. Lady Gwen, you, you had a couple of thoughts as well. Uh, well, in the North, I mean, small John Umber, is he breaking his oath to the Starks? Uh, he talks about Roos breaking his oath to Rob, the, the Karstarks have. Really, they're all engaged in oath-breaking at this point up there. A whole lot of oath-breaking. Sam and Gilly, well, Gilly's not breaking any oaths, but Sam is, by promising all this stuff to Gilly and by pretending that it's his child, even though it's not, he's still, he's pretty much breaking some oaths there. And even on a very small scale, very tiny oath breaking there, we have Vala, the Miranese woman that was responsible for cutting the throat of that Unsullied and several other crimes associated with the Sons of the Harpy. She took Varus's deal. She broke faith with her own cause to save her life. You can understand why she did it. She was faced with death either way, so it's a choice I think almost anyone would have made. But it's oath-breaking, I suppose you could say. So we've got a lot to talk about today. There's so many plot lines, so many fun things to relate to the books, so many things to talk about from a show perspective as well. But like I said, we're going to focus on book connections as much as we can. So this is a good time to point out that you can get uh, a free 30-day trial to listen to the books on audible.com. Go to History of Westeros and click on the Audible 30-day trial in the upper right. I'll give you a little tip. If you haven't listened to the book Game of Thrones, this is a great way to do it, to look back at things and to find specific passages. It's easier to look things up on an audiobook when it's divided by chapter, divided by sections, rather than having to remember exactly where in a book something is. In this case, Eddard's 10th chapter in A Game of Thrones. It's A Game of Thrones' 40th chapter overall. We're going to talk about this chapter throughout this episode. Well, really just through the Tower of Joy part, but that's a big part of this episode. And you'll see why it's really worth going back through again. There's lots of little details, lots of little fun things to consider. We're going to talk about a few things that you you guys probably never even noticed from the books here. So that's a lot of fun. And this is something I love to do while I'm doing chores or driving around. Why not enjoy Game of Thrones while you're doing that? It's, it's a, less of a commitment than sitting down to read. As much as I love sitting down to read, it is a little harder to find time to read than it is to do all those other things. Might as well be listening to something while you're doing it. So I highly recommend it. Check it out. Audible.com. If you don't like the, the... If you don't keep the subscription, 
you get to keep one free download. So you're, you're coming out ahead no matter what. One, la one little thing I want to point out before we start with the wall, something we didn't talk about that I wanted to throw out real briefly, and we're not going to have a chance to talk about it today because this plot line wasn't included in, t in episode three, which is Brienne. And Brienne, when she's talking to Sansa about Arya and the Hounds, he, we're, we're all maybe expecting the Hound to come back this season, kind of like he does in the books, if, if you believe the Gravedigger theory, which I think most people do at this point. Brienne mentions that she searched all over for Arya, couldn't find her, and that she was happy, she seemed happy with who she had been with, which was the Hound, even though Brienne didn't reveal it was the Hound to Sansa. So if they searched all over, didn't find the Hound's body, no mention of that. That's interesting. You guys, did you guys have any comments on that, or do you think maybe that was just a little bit of sneakiness, or do you think maybe I'm reading too much into that? Yeah, that definitely could be some setup. Like I said, they had to, uh, they had to reintroduce that somewhere, because he's... Mm. We certainly expect to see him this season. So certainly hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Hound! There's so many people getting hyped for the possibility of Clegane Bowl, which, yeah, I guess we could see that at some point. I don't think it's going to be. He's not going to be the. It's not going to be the first time we see a fight between Robert Strong and somebody. But I should call him the Mountain because he's the Mountain in the show. He's not Robert Strong in the show. But we're not there yet. Let's talk about the Wall. The return, as with both of the first two episodes of the season, the episode starts and ends with Jon Snow. This is Jon in the void, and we get a little backstory, or rather a connecting point, a, con a dot to connect by thinking about what Beric said back in the day. So, Lady Gwyn, talk to us a little bit, not only about, with Beric in mind, but about what Kit Harrington has been saying outside. We've got a little meta here. Yeah, Kit has been talking a lot in interviews about the existential crisis that is inherent with being dead and experiencing nothing and then coming back and, you know, having a mem. Well, I don't know if you have a memory of nothing, but, you know, coming back and wondering what is it all about? Uh, what does this mean? Um, so, you know, he had talked about the fact that John is going to be really changed, which um, we had discussed. And um, George's in the books, you know, really makes a point of that. There's a, there's always a price you pay when something like this happens. So it's good to see that the show is, you know, going forward with that theme. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. And of course, it's something that we don't have perspective on as people. And, and of course, as Kit Harrington, as an actor, it's not like he can go talk to other people who've had this real-life experience. Or, frankly, he probably can't find a whole lot of actors out there that have had to do a similar thing in a role. It's not, it's not exactly common. So, was he going to go talk to all the people that have played Jesus in a movie before or something? You know, I don't know. <laughs> How can, there's just no way to, to, to prepare yourself for that other than just trying to guess a bit. However, that said, we got a very interesting email after our show-only review on Monday. Now, this is a listener who wanted to remain anonymous, so we will not, we'll, we'll certainly honor that. But this is very interesting. Here's the quote, or here's, I'll quote them rather. I obviously haven't died and been raised from the dead. I have, however, had a near-death experience. I, I wasn't the victim of an attempted murder, but I nearly died due to a relatively rare illness. I have a two-week gap in my memory where I was in the hospital and incapacitated due to the illness. Full disclosure, I have three memories from the, from the time then. The collective time of which amounts to half the Tower of Joy scene. Otherwise, there is nothing. I've heard stories about what went on, but they are just that. Stories. 
To me, it's two weeks of my life that don't exist. He goes on to say, your decision-making changes. You've been close to death, even though you tried to avoid it. You were there on the precipice of death. Your perspective shifts. Avoiding death becomes less important, and maximizing the time you're alive becomes much more important. That's really cool. Thanks for that, anonymous listener. Uh, that's really interesting, and it does sound a bit like what John's going through. He described that there was just nothing. There was nothing to, there's nothing to remember. He remembers what happened before he died, and it's just a gap. So it's really something. Now, Yoke Boy, talk to us a bit about Melisandre's reaction. There's a lot of different, it's not just John's reaction that matters or not the audience. There's Melisandre, Davos, the Wildlings, the rest of the Night's Watch. We'll start with Melisandre. Yeah, I really liked uh, Carrie Svenouten's acting when she saw John and her eyes were kind of bulging out of her head. It was uh, well well played, I thought. And she does mention that there must be a prince that was promised. She thought it was Stannis, and now she's kind of looking at John and wondering. And I thought it was interesting that Mel mentions this prophesied prince, as we might soon learn that John was born a prince, and at the same time get confirmation that John is secretly of the Ares Rhaella line, which, of course, in the books is a prerequisite for the prince that was promised. So it's interesting that he's now being thrown in as a contender in the show. That is cool, yeah. I was going to say that, you know, we also saw the beginning or the setup for the Red Priests in Essos, who we expect will be. Uh, mirroring what's going on in the books, talking about Danny being the prince that was promised. So I think we're being set up to have maybe two very distinct belief groups, which on a meta level is quite similar to the fandom. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Mel, she starts off saying the Lord brought him back, which is sort of an indication that maybe her faith is restored a bit or entirely and then Davos shoes her off, which is kind of funny and maybe seems a little awkward. But upon reflection, it just it makes sense from an empathetic point of view. I mean, this guy just came back from the dead and, and Melisandre's trying to ask him all these existential questions and like telling him, putting all this burden on him. Like, you're the, you know, you might be the prince that was promised all this stuff. And Davos is like, dude, give the guy a minute. He just came back from the dead. <laughs> he just He's just having a realization that he was murdered by his friends. Uh, so... It, that was kind of neat. It was a bit Davos typically is he's he's that kind of character. He's the one that has empathy for people, kind of understands where they're coming from, whether it be Shireen, whether it be Stannis, and now here John and seeing what's important. Of course, he is the one that encouraged Melisandre to try to bring him back in the first place because he realized how important John was as a as the glue that holds the Wildlings and the Watch together. So I thought that was pretty nice, nice touch there. Uh, Davos being a little more realistic about things and saying, hey, yeah, it's weird as hell. You're back from the dead, but you're alive. You just got to live. You got to do what living people do. You know, just got to keep going. So I thought that was nice. Let's talk about the executions themselves. We have, of course, the great lines from Alistair Thorne slash Owen Teal. Really like that. Good stuff. We have just a bit of a blurb, each from Othel Yarwick and from Bowen Marsh, who are not big characters on the show. We were more familiar with them from the books, but it, it's good that they were included. Now they're dead. We wonder if that's what's going to happen in the in the books, whether they'll be hung, hanged. I keep saying that. Um, I need to be. I need to stand us around for the grammar correction there. Yes, hung. He's not a tapestry. Hanged. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, but Ollie said nothing. And that, I think that was a pretty big deal that they showed him there. And as much as some people probably thought it was like a, a moment to cheer at, I think it was more meant to be tragic. What do you think, uh, Yoke Boy? Yeah, last week we said that we hoped John might kind of rise above the situation somewhat and focus on the bigger picture. And personally, I didn't really want to see him kill a boy who saw his parents die. And also the tone of an Owen Teal interview seemed to point to John finding a common ground with him. It didn't turn out that way, we were wrong about that, but we did see that hesitation in John, didn't we? But ultimately, he, he couldn't forgive them, could he? Because of what they did and their d- defiance to the very end. Like you, Aziz, I think Ollie was supposed to be a sympathetic figure in some ways. But given the love for John, a large portion of the fandom have really shown some hatred for Ollie. <laughs> anyway, I, I think going forward, the Night's Watch must really move on and reform now to concentrate on their true enemy, who are, of course, the White Walkers, and all this infighting must stop. Now, there's another sneaky little thing that the show did here, and it's the kind of thing that you, us book readers, maybe aren't so keyed into because it's not something that ever happens in books, which is, I'm talking about the music. Now, this is very interesting. I didn't catch this. Our good friend Lucifer Means Lightbringer pointed me to a thread on Reddit made by uh, Reddit user VicStudent. It was also pointed out by YouTube commenter Javier Garcia, and that is that they played the Fire and Blood motif music, basically the Targaryen music that is, is played typically when the dragons are on screen or sometimes when Danny is on screen. It's that very haunting music. We've all heard it a bunch of times. It's been used several times throughout the show. But, but this is apparently the first time it's been played outside of a scene like that. So it was played during the executions, which, of course, that says a lot about John's parentage, which I think we're all pretty sold on. But the fact that they put it there in the show, that's a nice touch, a good detail. In fact, there's a lot of really small details in this episode that we've picked out to explore this episode that I think you all will like, and I think it will maybe give some book readers a little more appreciation for how much detail is in the show. Different kinds of details, and of course they miss a lot of the book te- details. They don't mess, they don't make it into the show, and that sometimes bothers us. But hey, what are you going to do? Aftermath of the execution, it seems like Peace has been reestablished, at least for now, between the Wildlings and the Night's Watch. The ringleaders are dead, and Ed is already friendly with the Wildlings, and it seems like he's in charge. Yoke Boy, you have some thoughts on Dolorous Ed as Lord Commander? Yes, so it seems that Ed might be Lord Commander, or at the moment, at least, acting Lord Commander. Ed is the only Night's Watch now that we're really familiar with. So this really makes a lot of sense to have him in charge. But presumably it will have to go to a vote if it's going to be anything like the books. And this also gives Ed some plot armour, I think, which I'm quite glad about. As surely they want to keep one of the original Night's Watch in the story. I agree with that. Uh, and speaking of plot armor, at the end of this episode, after the credits, when we, as usual, discuss what's on the next on Game of Thrones, we also do our worry of the week. We're also going to talk about characters that have plot armor. So we'll talk. We'll bring up Dolores Ed there to see how he fits in that whole scheme. 
But staying on Ed for now, will he think, you think he'll feel betrayed by John? That's an interesting question. Ed risks his life to help John come back, and then John just walks off. I think Ed may understand he's his friend and all, but he still might feel a little betrayed. I don't think he's going to, like, you know, get violent with John because of it or anything like that. But he might feel, he might feel betrayed. He might feel disappointed at the very least. So we'll have to see about that. I, I think anyway, it may not matter, maybe kind of a moot point, because I think whatever ends up happening, John's going to find himself back involved one way or another. Whether he's part of the Night's Watch or not, he's not just going to walk out of the story. So something's going to bring him back in, and it seems likely that it's going to be Sansa slash Rickon or both of them. Lady Gwen, give us some thoughts on that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, from everything we've seen in Winterfell, Ramsay just is hell-bent on involving Jon. You know, he's definitely got him in his sights. So it's sure to be one of those things. Um, but the other the other possibility, or I think it'll work at the same time as this Ramsay storyline, is that Mel is probably going to work with Davos to convince Jon that, you know... Remember that, you know, to focus on the real threat from the others, you know, probably the need to gain support of more northern lords, which would be continuing Stannis' mission, which in Mel's mind is really the prince that was promised mission, right? And really, you know, as messed up as John is, whatever his mental crisis is, he's not likely to forget Hardhome, so. Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> Who could? <laughs> Hardhome was awesome, but not for John. It was terrifying, but either way, you can't forget it. <laughs> so we'll have to wait and see on that. There's, as usual with these early season plot lines, you can't always tell where things are headed. But it's very exciting to see some of these things working their way onto the screen and seeing maybe what might happen in the books. I think some of us expected maybe a bit more bloodletting between the Wildlings and, and the Watch there. Uh, as we talked about last episode. So this this whole neat execution of everybody may not be what we see in the books. It may be a little messier, maybe a little more chaotic. And for one thing, 1-1 one, one was badly wounded. We don't even know if he's going to survive. I hope he does. He's cool. It'd be nice to have a giant in the story, a friendly giant besides Hodor. <laughs> so let's talk about a brother who's not at the wall, Sam. Sam and Gilly, we hear them talk about how they're headed to Horn Hill, which is nice. We had some advanced notice of that based on casting news. We knew Randall Tarley and Dickon Tarley, and I believe his mother would be cast, and maybe the sister. I'm not sure. I guess she would be cast, too. He certainly mentions the sister and mother and father as if we're going to see them all, so I guess that's what we can expect. Anyone who's checked on that casting news could correct me there. I, I didn't bother to look to see if the sister were, was cast or not. And like I said at the beginning, Gilly talks about wanting to see Old Town, the most beautiful city in the realm. Yeah, oh, I'm hyped for that. They didn't give us any advanced shots of it. There's no trailer, bit tidbits. You'd often expect like a stunning shot like that to be shown in a preseason trailer, but they're keeping it secret. So I don't know what, what to expect there. Now talk about the connection. This is, a, you know, this is a setup scene, obviously. Sam and Gilly on the ship isn't meant to advance the plot by itself too much. It's more of like it's heading towards a plot advancer. Uh, so, but compare it real quick, Lady Gwen. You've got a couple thoughts on how the scene compares to the book version of their journey. Yeah, you know, when we got some uh, still pictures way back when, you know, in the winter time of from this season, and one of them was Sam on board the ship, and you could kind of tell he was getting sick in the in the barrel, and it made me think, 
you know, in the books, Sam and Gilly take the ship that's the Night's Watch ship Blackbird from the Walt Bravos, and Sam is just sick the entire time. So <laughs> uh, in in that sort of build up, I was really pleased to see that because that was actually one of the few things that was direct book material. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. um, it was nice to see a little, you know, it's a nod. Very nice. Yeah, I, I think so. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing those new characters on screen. I'm not sure. I think I'm looking more forward to Old Town than I am to seeing Horn Hill, but Horn Hill should be cool. Maybe we'll see uh, Hearts Bane, see what Dickon Tarly's all about. Wonder how, I wonder what age they'll have him be, etc. So that should be fun. But let's move on. We're going to talk about the Tower of Joy, and there's a lot of things we're going to talk about with the Tower of Joy. And I'm going to start by pointing out that this scene was so special that and so anticipated that I've done something that I've never done in the entire history of making History of Westeros podcast Game of Thrones reviews, and that's that I'm wearing the same shirt I wore on Monday to, <laughs> to this episode today. Jenny Slife made this. It's available. I, it's, I forget if it's on Redbubble or Society6, maybe both. And it says, now it ends with the Tower of Joy above it and blue roses swirling around. It's just great. I love this shirt. And Lady Gwen's got a Dane shirt on, too. I do. I'll tilt my, uh, there you go, our Sword of the Morning shirt. <laughs> there we go. The, s the star and the sword. Very good. Excellent, excellent. So we're all decked out appropriately. All right. The previously on, at the beginning of this episode, episode three, included a lot of talk about Rhaegar and Lyanna. We had Sansa and Littlefinger talking about it. You know, the, 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 the rose and the statue of Lyanna, all that. And that was cool. That got me a little hyped. And when the actual scene started, I, I just felt it. I really did. It was it felt it in my stomach. I was really excited. I sat on the edge of my seat. Just a big deal. I talked about this at length, though, in the show-only review. So let's. I want to hear your reaction, since people, a lot of people have already heard my reaction. Let's get some other reactions. Lady Gwen, start with you. Oh, well, this was just... I was so excited. RLJ is what brought me to the fandom. You know, I figured it out on my own just as I was a book reader, and that's what brought me into forums. So I spent literally years having these epic discussions on the RLJ threads at Westeros.org. Uh, I've written a lot about it on my own blog. And, you know, the significance of the Tower of Joy to RLJ just can't be understated. It's one of those biggest building blocks, and it's really the first strong hint that Leanna had a child. Um, on page, it's part of a string of symbolic connections between Lyanna and Blue Roses, which link back and forth to Rhaegar and John. Blood and promises and all this sort of symbolism that lead to the end conclusion. So it was just a huge moment for me, and I know for so many other fans who have speculated endlessly about this scene. Right on. Okay, Yuck Boy, tell us what you thought. Yeah, I was really excited to see it. It's definitely an iconic moment from the books, isn't it? And, you know, I was really pleased, first of all, that they picked the location and setting really well. That castle on the rocks was a really good representation, I think, as far as it's possible to go. It might not be quite what we imagined, but I thought it captured the spirit. Uh, we did put out a poll on the Radio Westeros Twitter to see if people liked the Tower of Joy scene, and here's the results. 36% of people loved it, 40% liked it, 17 thought it was just average, and just 7% didn't like it. Now, overall, that's very positive. 36 loved it, 40% liked it, so that's 76% positive. 
more than three quarters. So that's good. That's good job, HBO there. Now let's let's drill it down a little more. And I totally agree, by the way, with you, Yoke Boy. The the site was really well chosen. Of course, I, I think a lot of us imagine the Tower of Joy being a little smaller because we know Ned pulls it down afterwards, and that's kind of hard to do with how many people did he even have? It was just him and Howland and maybe uh, maybe a nursemaid. I mean, that's that that's by that line by itself has inspired a lot of uh, extra theorizing because how did he do that? You know, but in any case, it was a beautiful location. And as they're fighting. This you can see behind them the vast expanse of these plains and, and mountains and desert behind them, and it was just really, really, just excellent. Really, really good job. So let's talk about Arthur himself and some of the other characters as they're depicted. Compare them to the book versions and what we thought in general. Now, of course, the lack of dawn is one thing people pointed out. There was there may have been a dawn there. We'll talk about that in a second. It clearly wasn't the dawn from the books. Nothing like the dawn from the books. Not a Greatsword. Now, there's some difficulty with greatswords in general. I said some things on Monday that I'm going to dial back a little a, a bit. What's funny is I got my most of my information from what George has put in the books, so maybe this is how it works in his world. But in the real world, contrary to what I said, I talked to Elio Garcia and Werthead a bit on Twitter, and they showed me some more research. And in expert hands, a greatsword is very useful against multiple opponents. And Arthur Dane, of course, was an expert. He would say he's in expert hands. Uh, they're not as heavy as you might think, seven to eight pounds only. They're really thin, that's the thing. However, they're not great against foes in plate armor, which might explain some things here. Of course, none of Ned's companions had plate armor. Uh, so all this basically is pointing out that it still could have worked for them to use greatsword in the sense that Dawn is sharper than a regular greatsword, so the whole plate armor thing might not be a problem. Uh, and and the scene I'm referring to in the books mostly is John fighting with Mance, thinking he's Rattleshirt, he's still got the glamour on, in the practice yard, and wondering how the heck Mance is landing so many blows with this bigger, unha bigger unwieldy blade. He thinks to himself, I should be hitting him twice as often, and that's just not what's happening. So, it's it, but there's a lot of logistical issues, and of course depicting it that way. They made their choice. I don't mind. I think it's fine. The point is Arthur Dane was a badass. I don't think anyone's going to have seen that scene and thought that guy was that guy was weak. <laughs> so I think they certainly accomplished that much. But let's get some other opinions on it. Yoke Boy, tell us uh, your thoughts on Dawn or lack thereof. Okay, first of all, I really do love Dawn in the books. It definitely captured my imagination. But I think introducing a kind of magical, white, strange, surreal-looking sword in this segment would have just kind of stolen the scene with a sword. And that might have taken away from the acting and the location and the importance of the scene as a whole. And so I wasn't particularly bothered about the, sh the change in show canon. I think some things really fit the books and belong there in our imagination that perhaps wouldn't translate to the show. And if there's no future for Dawn in the show, the, the, then there wasn't really much point of introducing it here, so I wasn't that bothered. And that doesn't necessarily mean that there's no future for Dawn in the books, though, so watch this space. But also we're thinking that the showrunners might have given book readers a slight nod to Dawn, which they often seem to do the more we look. The sword that, he, that Arthur Dane kind of stabbed in the ground with his right hand did have some kind of sun sigil on the hilt. 
and the camera kind of focused on it, so we're wondering if this is possibly a nod to Dawn. I think it had to be. I don't see what else it could have been in that kind of... It's like, why would they go out of their way to put a sun sigil on this hilt and then show it if just by accident. So uh, nice job, showrunners. Very sneaky, good little nod to Dawn. I don't think that it was meant to be a magical sword or to meant to be, you know, to show the real Dawn from the books, but it was a nod. It was a like, look, at least he, at least we thought of this, you know, we couldn't put the real, you know, badass meteorite blade in this episode or in the show at all for reasons that Yoke Boy explained. I think it's a really good summary of why, but we didn't want to leave. We didn't want to have nothing. So they, they did that much. And I thought that was nice. By the way, that's the sword that Ned carries with him into the tower of joy as the vision ends. Because Arthur drops it as he's stabbed. Ned picks it up because he's swordless. <laughs> and finish off, finishes off Arthur with it and then runs inside. So that's pretty cool. Now, reviews on the scene were mixed, but mostly positive, as we said. I've seen no complaints about the casting, like pretty much at all. Other than maybe a few people talking about Arthur Dane's hair color. Which, honestly, is kind of silly because we don't know what Arthur Dane's hair color was in the books. Not at all. There's no reason to assume he had Targaryen-looking hair, Valyrian-looking hair, the silver hair, etc. His own sister had brown hair. So, no reason to, to assume that his hair color is wrong. And this actor, Luke Roberts... Good job, Luke Roberts, a, a handsome, intense, badass sword fighter with the ability to deliver a few lines with gravitas, right? That's what he was. I don't know that Luke Roberts could have pulled the scene off with a greatsword. That's another one of the issues with using a greatsword. It kind of seems unlikely. He's a, maybe a bit of a unicorn as far as an actor goes, having all these very specific traits that made him right for this role. But he's been in other spots, actually. I looked him up. He's the character Woods Rogers in the show Black Sails, which I really enjoy. I love that show. And he's also been in the show Wolf Hall as a recurring character named Harry Norris, uh, which is a show I mean to check out but haven't done so yet. Uh, I imagine some of you have already. Maybe you weren't aware that this is the same actor. So that's cool. In any case, this choreography in this fight team was one of the best fights the show has had. It reminds me a bit of The Hound versus Brienne, which was another brutal and desperate fight. Maybe a couple of others. Certainly near the top. The second Kingsguard there. Another important little detail. This was fun. We weren't sure who he was at first. Uh, Yoke Boy, give us some thoughts on how we figured out who this was. It's kind of a good story here. Well, we were thinking that Hightower was mentioned by Pycelle, wasn't he? Yeah. And he was also mentioned in a previous episode. I can't remember... Which one, but way back along, I think. As I think it was died. Two Swords was the name of that episode, I think. Okay. As, as They mentioned him as having died at the Tower of Joy, so they really needed to make it Hightower to avoid the continuity error. And funnily enough, we were on Twitter talking about this, a few of us, and the actor, Eddie Eyre, who who played the part, tweeted to us out of nowhere that it was indeed Sir Gerald Hightower. Yeah, that sealed the deal right there. Because it, there was a lot of reason to think it was Oswell Went. He had Oswell Went's line. He had Oswell Went's posture, which is when Ned remembers him, he's sitting there scraping, he's sharpening his sword. And that's the first scene we see of him, sharpening his sword. And you would think that Gerald Hightower would be a lot older. He's in his 60s or so in the books when the scene happens. And so it really seemed like it would be went based on those details. But <laughs> actor says it was Hightower. That's that. That's that. They just did the law of conservation of characters 
pushed those two things together, made him look like Went, talk like Went, but gave him the name of Sir Gerald. And by the way, Eddie Eyre, that seems to have been his first acting role. I looked him up too. Didn't, it seems like he got his first break there. And good for him. Seems like he's real excited to have been a part of that. And we're excited for him. That was very cool. Good way to... Good, he took somebody out, then got stabbed in the neck. Died like a real Kingsguard. <laughs> it didn't go out to one of the friends. It was Ned that killed him. So let's, let's, let's do a little more comparing to the books here. Ned's six companions is reduced from seven in the books. I have posted a blog entry on uh, historyofwesteros.com. I, I posted it on Facebook as well as Twitter recently, but you could just go straight to the website. Uh, it's called 10 Warriors at the Tower of Joy. I break down the history and background of all these different characters and their, some of their abilities and what they're known for. No mention of R plus L equals J because that is the main thing people talk about at the Tower of Joy. So I wanted to make a post that had something that, that focused on the other angles. And Radio Westeros, you guys have an R plus L equals J episode as well. So a lot of resources out there between the two of us for diving in deeper here. But first of all, young Ned himself, the actor, his name is Robert Aramayo, a new actor. He's about to appear in the new show Lewis and Clark. Uh, he apparently learned some sword fighting from Luke Roberts there at, you know, on set. They taught him a few moves. What did you guys think of the actor as young Ned? I thought he had, he looked the part, certainly. Yeah, I thought he did. Yeah, he didn't, didn't have a lot of lines, but I thought he delivered him well. Yeah, he did. Now, one little small detail that I thought was really cool. Never would have caught this on my own. A couple of people on Twitter pointed it out to, out to us, including our friend Azad. Uh, the sword that Ned is using in this fight is the same sword Eddard Stark carries around in Season 1. You can tell by the cross grip and the hilt. It's, it's not super fancy of a sword, as you, as you would expect. Ned Stark wouldn't carry around a fancy sword. But it's distinct enough that it just can't be a mistake. So I, th I think they just were like, hey, let's, where's that sword that Sean Bean used? Let's bring that back and give it, to, uh, give it to young Ned. So nice touch there. Very nice touch. Also noticed that one of Ned's companions seemed to be a guide. He was wearing the, the standard TV show version of Dornish garb with the sash on his head. And he was uh, either a Middle Eastern or Hispanic, some sort of olive-complected actor, which is usually what they cast for Dornish roles. So that was a nice touch as well, I thought. The only other detail I could see there was, was, was obviously Helen Reed was mentioned by name, but also he had the lizard lion sigil holding his cloak up. So that was a nice detail as well. Okay, so Lady Gwen, take us through some more of the book-to-show comparisons here regarding the companions. Yeah, well, I mean, they've obviously and honestly, understandably dispensed with all the other minor character storylines. Ethan Glover, William Dustin, Theo Will, Mark Riswell, who are all named in Ned's dream. Um, and Jory Cassell's father, Martin Cassell, who, because I love Jory so much, I would have just loved if they had maybe said a little like oh and there's jory's father yeah that would have been nice <laughs> that would have been, really <laughs> that would have been cool i think a lot of tv show viewers were like wait jory who is that who is right, <laughs> oh jory uh but anyways it's understandable that they they are not going to go into all that but related to the numbers you know they so they've reduced the numbers but in the books it was seven versus three and uh only two people walked away meaning eight people died uh, there's an interesting parallel 
that's been discussed a bit on RLJ threads at westros.org. Late in Eddard 10, the Tower of Joy chapter, which begins with this dream, Robert has come to visit Ned, and he mentions the deaths that occurred from um, during the Jamie's ambush, which is what immediately preceded uh, Ned's Tower of Joy dream in Eddard 9. That's how he breaks his leg and he comes to be, you know, asleep for, was it uh, a week or 10 days? Yeah. In the show, of course, he's stabbed through the leg instead of breaks his legs. Same difference, though. Yeah. But Robert actually uses this, a line, an exact same line from the Tower of Joy dream. And there's a clear reference to the same number of dead men. He says to him, I want no more of this. Jamie slew three of your men, you five of his. Now it ends. Oh, yeah, right here. Shirt coming up again. Now, now it ends. ends. <laughs> so, right? So, you know, there's just similarities there. Eight, eight men dead. Um, another kind of tragic showdown. And that paired with the things that happened immediately prior to Jamie's ambush um, are probably what happened what inspired um ned to be having this dream in the first place as he lay under the milk of poppy yeah it's really it's it's a really great observation i know i've discussed this that aspect before but i don't think a lot of people and i don't remember where i've discussed it. i don't know if i've mentioned it in an episode or if you guys and we talked about it offline or something a while back i really don't remember but i remember when i first discovered that or figured it out. I don't remember which. It's, it's all a blur to me at this point. And I thought that was huge, not because it changes anything, but because it just goes to show that there's still more details that we haven't caught. And that's awesome. I mean, it's, of course, in the Game of Thrones, it's important for George to have raised the issue of the Tower of Joy at some point. But you, from, from a reader's perspective, if we're not totally on top of the game, and it's understandably that someone could miss that, like I think almost all of us did, especially the first time. I mean, how could you catch that the first time through? That he gave a reason for Ned to have this dream. It wasn't just, oh, Ned's ha you know, in, having a fever. He's drinking milk of the poppy. So he's going to have this dream of this old thing that happened that's important in his life. It wasn't that random. It was specifically set up, as Lady Gwynne said, by the encounter with Jamie and his guards in the street where Ned's men are all slaughtered, and he's the only one that walks away. Jory is killed. Two of his other men are killed. Nah, yeah, it's really, really well set up. And Bran, let's talk about Bran. There's so many aspects to this scene, because it is more about Bran here. In the books, it's nothing to do with Bran at all. But in this scene, Bran's illusions and his attitude, and this is what, you know, it's the Three-Eyed Blood Raven is kind of bringing him along, and this is just the start. He's, you know, he's got so much more to learn. He says everything. I have to, you have to learn everything. <laughs> and and he, showing him this, I mean, this is really meaningful, and it shattered some of his beliefs a bit, but there's just so much more to come, I think. Lady Gwen, what do you think about Bran's pain being echoed by us viewers. We wanted to see more. And, and, and of course, there's more to it than that. It's not just that we wanted to see more. It's, it's what was happening on the periphery of the scene. Yep. Uh, Bran, you know, just like every one of us, he wanted to be inside that tower. He heard that woman, um, which to me sounded like a woman in labor screaming. And he, all he wanted to do was get inside that tower, which is exactly what all of us wanted. And we, I'm sure we all totally felt his frustration when he got yanked out of the scene. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I think we kind of knew it would happen. Some people probably held out hope that we'd see inside the tower, but I personally did not think we would see that. Uh, I thought that would be something left more ambiguous. 
and we'd get maybe a little more later. Now, the fact that it sounds like a scream of labor is very interesting. I think a lot of the, especially guys watching, would not have caught that. But you're, you're, you're as a mother yourself, and other commenters on YouTube have pointed out that, that was definitely a scream of a woman in labor. Not just a scream of a woman in pain, very specifically a labor scream. So good job on the showrunner's part again there for getting a, a, an authentic you know, woman in labor scream that, that women who have gone through that recognized as such. So that's, that's really cool. As for the concept of Bran losing his illusions, this is what we're seeing here. He remembers his father as this paragon of honor who would never, you know, stab someone in the back. Of course, he didn't do it, but his friend did. And it, it just kind of tears down a bit of what Bran thought about his father. It's a, kind of a, a kill the boy type situation in, in a sense. He's got to forget these childhood notions of naivete and of every battle and fight being resolved with perfect honor. It doesn't work that way. Lady Gwen, uh, tell us what you think about that. Well, you know, the honorable Ned Stark is a big theme in Game of Thrones. We're told constantly that Ned is so honorable. But then when you read closely, you see him doing things that may not be necessarily honorable. But um, in terms of Bran losing his illusions, this... Um, to me, this really spoke to the sadness that Brand mentions in his father's voice um, when he talks about this in the books. You know, when when Ned told Brand about Arthur Dane, he's very sad. You know, so you know that there's more to the story than just a sword fight. You know, there's something else. Yeah, and the sadness is kind of you. You kind of suspect the sadness has to do with his feelings for Lyanna, but there's there is more to it. That's kind of masking. His thoughts on the dishonor of the whole thing. And also, it, it, it shows a bit more of how Ned is when it comes to his family. Because Ned is honorable almost always. But when, his, when some, a member of his family is threatened, his, his personal honor just goes out the window because he recognizes what's more important. Consider the scene with Varys, which is very similar in the books and show when Varys is trying to get him to confess falsely confess that he that Joffrey is truly the heir of Robert and Ned's like I'm not gonna do that my honor's not so cheap and then he brings Sansa he's like what do you think they're just gonna leave Sansa alone and then Ned's like okay I'll do it I'll, I'll I'll lie whatever you want me to do similar situation here he's willing to do whatever it took to get past Arthur if it meant saving his sister so honor comes before most things but not that, not family, not for Ned Stark, not even for Ned Stark. So that's, that's a neat thing. And I think when Bran fully realizes that, I think he'll understand. But it's still hard for him to consider. Now, what about you, Yoke Boy? You, I know you have some great thoughts on this whole situation and what it means to the fandom, as well as what the scene means in terms of shifting a little more towards Bran and away from RLJ. Yeah, well, I think that they've shown the truth about Ned's so-called glorious victory against Sir Arthur Dane to perhaps in some ways preempt a reveal of RLJ. The truth of Ned's fight is very different from the facts and almost this kind of northern legend that you would get, okay? So... And so there could be a similar difference with Ned's story or, and John's, of John's parents and the other stories that he's brought home from Robert's Rebellion. Now, there's also 
some wondering about how this relates to the how the books and show relate here with the with the add-in to this scene of Bran being heard by his father, which was very unambiguous. In the in the book, it's pretty unambiguous too, but there's at least but it's less ambiguous in the show. There's no two ways about it in the show. Uh, in the books, there's some re- reason for doubt because Ned kind of looks up and you know there's a sound of rustling and and Three-Eyed Blood Raven is is more he's more believable when he says, "Oh, he heard a rustling or a, you know leaves on the wind, etc." But Ned, young Ned, turns around and looks and scans, and you see it from his perspective for a moment. And there's nobody there, so it's really very clear what's happening. York boy, give us some more thoughts on that. Yeah, just pulling pulling it out. There's a parallel scene in the books, and I'll give you some quotes. Oh, well, well the, first of all, I'll say the quote from the TV show. It says, he heard me. And Bloodraven says, or the three-eyed Bloodraven, the past is already written, the ink is dry. Okay, so that's in in the books. This is Eddard hearing Bran in one of his flashbacks. And that quote is, but, said Bran, he heard me. He heard a whisper on the wind, a rustling amongst the leaves. You cannot speak to him, try as you might. I know, I have my own ghosts, Bran. A brother that I loved, a brother that I hated, a woman I desired. Through the trees, I see them still, but no word of mine has ever reached them. The past remains the past. We can learn from it, but we cannot change it. So you see there in both canons, Bloodraven is insistent that you can't change or affect the past. And in both occasions, Bran is protesting. And I think it's really down to the viewer viewer or the reader to decide for themselves who you agree with there. I'll give my personal take. I'd actually really hate a time travel paradox to evolve in the story where Bran can go back and change everything at will. I think it would be a bit cheap and, you know, it, it it's kind of could ruin the story, I think. I really wouldn't like it. But you know what I think? I like the idea that Bran can cause these kind of whispers in the wind and this mystical going on, but that's the limit to what he can do. And that's really what I hope it comes down to. Yeah, I like the idea of it being just barely possible, not enough to make any meaningful difference, but to just the echoes of the future or the echoes of the past coming through in the current timeline, whenever that current timeline happens to be, whatever timeline we're looking at at that point in Brand's vision. I, I do think that's cool, and, and it's a nice way to include that aspect of that it pops up in fantasy and sci-fi from time to time without taking it too far. And this is a very George way to do it, a very Song of Ice and Fire way to do it, where it's, it's possible, but it's costly, and it's not really that strong. The magic, you know having being so mysterious and imperfect in his world it kind of fits with that now what about the reveal of his age i thought that was a little strange yoke boy what do you think about that yeah we're calling him the three-eyed blood raven now but i don't even think <laughs> we should be calling him blood raven the character yeah, reveals, not after this <laughs> no he reveals he's over a thousand years old Whereas Bloodraven in the books is is he about 125 in in that ballpark, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, this means that the the show 
Bloodraven, can't even be a Targaryen or anything like that. And his entire backstory must be very, very, very different. There's some ideas I've seen that the Thousand Years refers to his journeying through time and the Weirnet. But I, I think they've just simply changed Bloodraven completely and expect we'll learn more about this kind of show creation now. To me, it struck me as weird as why they'd make this change. I don't know why it's necessarily. Perhaps we'll learn. But I did think if they're going to do a Duncan Egg one day on HBO, this is going to create a really bad continuity error because there was a great opportunity to tie Duncan Egg to Game of Thrones with Bloodraven and his story. Yeah. Okay, some further thoughts. Again, Bloodraven indicates that Bran has a future beyond the cave, doesn't he? And by saying he will show him everything, does this mean everything to do with RLJ? What does everything mean? I mean, he's talking about something specific, isn't he? He's not saying you have to know everything literally. He's talking about something. And he, he's obviously showing clues of RLJ. If so, what is the purpose of this three-eyed blood raven showing this to Bran in the greater scheme? What's the importance Giving the, the three-eyed blood raven seems to be concerned with a looming grand battle against the others. Is it going to be Bran's role to perhaps transmit this information to John and outline some kind of grand destiny of John's to do with the others or something like that? There really has to be a purpose why RLJ, as we think, would be so important to the three-eyed blood raven. Good points. Very good points there. I also like a suggestion that we got from Archmaster Josh, a longtime listener slash watcher, and it, it's an idea on what happens next. I think it would be unlikely that we go back to the Tower of Joy for another vision. I think they're going to come, we're going to move a little quicker than that, and things in between will be brought up in another way. And he's come up with a clever idea for how that might play out that I think is very plausible. And that's what, and that's that Bran will tell Mira what he just saw, and that will inspire Mira to tell him the story of the turning in Harrenhal and the Night of the Laughing Tree, which of course fits in perfectly. He will, she'll think, huh, Lyanna, huh? The sister. Well, I've got a story about that that my father told. Blah blah blah. And then maybe they can put two and two together and help the the viewers put two and two together if they haven't already, or at least to just make it more solid in the minds who have picked it out. And of course, I think it would be too much for us to hope that we got that scene as in the Tournament of Hall in a flashback. If they pulled that out of nowhere somewhere, that'd be awesome. But really, we got no casting news on that. And I think showing a whole tournament or even parts of it, that I just kind of doubt we're going to see that. But it would be awesome if we did. But it's probably too much to hope for at this point. Lady Gwen, you have some thoughts on this as well. I think uh, you're, you're kind of in agreement here, huh? Yes, Archmaster Josh, you, you and I are of a single mind. I think that Mira telling Bran a very likely abbreviated version of the Attorney uh, Hall story is pretty much exactly what we should expect to see. Um, I, I would think that the next Bran vision or visions will follow along with Ned's next fever dream, which is when he's in the black cells and he recalls the moment when all the smiles died at the tourney of Hall, when Rhaegar gave Lyanna the um, crown of blue roses. So it would fit to have that 
mirror story in between there because it would just keep making connection after connection. Um, also in that black cell dream, he Ned recalls Lyanna in her bed of blood, which could be a, you know, a, a, in the same vision. It could be yet another, maybe a third brand vision or a fourth actually. And by the way, the bed of blood um, does connect back to the Tower of Joy dream because that is how that one starts. And almost definitely that phrase points to childbirth. Oh yeah, bed of blood means childbirth. Definitely agree there. Okay, uh, let's do a little shout out to our Patreon sellsword captains who get their names mentioned, name their names and their sellsword company names and mottos mentioned every few episodes. You can check out how to get a title like this on Patreon. Go to historyofwesteros.com. Patreon links in the right sidebar. Takes you there to get a look at all the things we have to offer there. Help help out support the show and be a part of it. So. Thanks to Peter Blaze of the Emerald Isle, captain of the Werewood Wanderers, to long lives, quick deaths, cold beer, and warm women. By the way, Peter, I used your name, Werewood Wanderers, in a video game recently. thought that was cool. Dagron, Marshal of the Axe, captain of the Red Tide. Resistance is futile. Garion Pike, wielder of Grave Embrace of Lyrian Steel Axe and captain of the Iron Wave. Iron's kiss is eternal. Captain Darton of the Mother's Men, lending his support, and... Last but not least, our newest one, Chiron Callsbane, captain of the Stone Shields. The torrent breaks upon the stone. And also thanks to our good friend, Lucifer Means Lightbringer, the high priest of the Church of Starry Wisdom. And check out his podcast as well, Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire. Some of you have already seen him on our show before, but I want to make sure he gets uh, his name in there. So let us take a quick ad break. We'll be right back to talk about Marine and all the other things in this episode now that we've moved on past the Tower of Joy. We'll be right back. Okay, Marine, 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 that lovely city far to the east where Danny has all kinds of problems that she's not even aware of because she's not there. So Varus, though, Varus is a quite good at spying even more than he is probably in the show or in the books. He gets this going so quickly. His his little birds do their work really fast. He's got all this info on Vala, who is this Miranese woman that we'd seen sneakily in last season. Now, I think we haven't talked about King's Landing yet. We haven't talked about Kyburn yet, but we're all, as you all know, having seen this episode, that Kyburn's the little birds are there and we see Kyburn working with them. We might be seeing the same tactic from the other angle here with Varys because Varys brings up Dom, Vala's child, his, her son, who has a breathing problem. And he talks, he says he knows this. And you wonder if Varys has been in contact with this kid. And that's how he knows these things, by being nice to the kid. He's learned things about his mother because that's what Kyburn is showing at the very beginning of that scene, which we'll talk about in a minute. So I think that's a pretty cool little sneaky parallel there, and it could be entirely what's happening. What we actually find out from all this, whether or not my theory is correct, the bottom line is Yunkai, Astapor, and Volantis are bankrolling the Sons of the Harpy. That's a big bad news for Team Danny because those people have infinite money, essentially, not literally, but essentially infinite money, so they can bankroll anyone. That explains a lot, explains how the Sons of the Harpy are so numerous, because some of them are probably just being paid. They're not really in it for their culture. They're, oh, we want to get rid of the Dragon Queen because she's not Miranese, blah, blah, blah. Surely some of them feel that way, but a lot of them are in this because 
there's deep pockets paying for this whole operation. So that, that clears things up a little bit. Now here's a crackpotty theory that makes a little bit of sense, I think. I'm not convinced, but I like the idea. Yoke Boy, take us away. Okay, I have to admit this came from a watcher called Aero Doe, and I, I saw this posted on Twitter, so a shout out to you. Could Missandei be the harpy in the show? It at f- When I first heard the idea, I was a bit kind of suspicious of it, but... Th- but then I read more about the idea and it seemed a bit more appealing. Grey Worm was shown to share all the information he has about the unsullied patrol times to Miss Anday. He told her in the episode, when I'm going on patrol with the unsullied, what we see on patrol and who we capture on patrol, these are the things that Grey Worm has been telling her. And these must be the things that the Harpy must know or have found out for the Sons of the Harpy to be an effective force, I think. So if there is a single Harpy in the show, there aren't really that many other candidates, with the popular suspect in the books, the Green Grace, missing, of course. So I think this theory is worth considering and is interesting because it would give a whole new angle on Miss and Day's relationship with Grey Worm. Because if this was true, it means that she would have been using him and playing him along the whole time. Yeah, it's a cool theory. And the uh, I think one of the strongest things it has going for it is that as much as it doesn't fit with our notion of Miss Sunday at all from the books, and frankly, it doesn't fit that well in the show as in terms of what we know about her personality and the fact that her, you know, she's anti-slavery. She's been a slave herself. It doesn't make a lot of sense that she would want to restore the great masters. But that would not stop them from doing this. And it also ties in with something we brought up last season. Her role is significantly reduced at this point because she's got, she's kind of been overshadowed by Varus and Tyrion in terms of people that have more experience in playing the intrigue game. And the show doesn't like to keep extra characters around because it doesn't, it wants them to have things to do or basically their pattern seems to be if they don't have anything to do, we kill them or we put them on an infinite boat ride, something like that. So just like Barristan was killed off kind of out of nowhere. We're like, really? That was kind of random. Well, they didn't have a use for him anymore. They they had Grey Worm. They had Jorah. They had Tyrion. They have Varus is coming. There's just a lot of people at Meereen. Dario, too. They just didn't have room for Barristan, so they killed him off. And I think that maybe what they... And they already did this. This is another thing this, this theory has going for it. They already used this sort of theory, this this idea of one of Danny's people turning against her that, that doesn't happen in the books... Of course, I'm referring to Iroa, who steals the dragons. That whole invented season two plot that wasn't, frankly, wasn't very popular. It was a little weak, to be honest. But uh, it, it was, you know, it's something they've been willing to do, and they show it didn't make it didn't necessarily make sense for Iroa to, to turn on Danny. But you know, it they made it fit well enough. Missandei might be a harder sell, but it's a good point. We, if who is if the if there's a son uh, a leader of the Sons of the Harpy. Who could it possibly be? There's no... Hisdar's dead. You know, that's who we, a lot of us thought it was, but there's just no period, no character that we have seen that it could be. So either, either way, one way or the other, a big question is who is going to ultimately succeed in dealing with the Sons of the Harpy? Is it going to be Varys and with you know help from Tyrion? Are they going to be successful in this and getting rid of the Sons of the Harpy and their backers figuring this whole situation out? Or if they don't, 
then maybe it'll be Danny doing it herself. Maybe she'll take care of the problem. And I've got a. I think we all agree if that is how it happens, it's pretty straightforward what she's going to be able to do. And that is, well, let's go to base Dothrak and talk about it. The first thing we're told pretty much is that all the Kalasars are there for this Kalar Vezven. All the Kalasars, eh? <laughs> That's awfully convenient. And I think immediately astute book readers heard that and were like, oh, Stallion amounts the world, incoming, unite all the tribes, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that was that was pretty straightforward. Yoke boy, what do you think? Well, I've got the quote here from the books. The stallion is the Karl of Karls promised in ancient prophecy, child. He will unite the Dothraki into a single Kalasar and ride to the ends of the earth. Or so it was promised. So the the uniting of the Kalasar does obviously fit with this Kalar Zezren. I don't know what Vez, that means. Zezven, yeah, whatever. Zezven, it's the festival. <laughs> Something in Dothraki. Of Karls, yes. <laughs> and despite the groundwork for the stallion that mounts the world being done in season one, I'm not sure if the show will follow up with the stallion prophecy the show is slightly unpredictable in its use of book prophecies but i think they'll be going for the same end result the uniting of the kalasars behind the combined force of danny and drogon who are obviously the two prime candidates for the stallion who mounts the world in the books totally i i I really agree with that and they're right now, as things stand, they're trying to decide what to do with Danny since she broke the sacred laws. But I don't think we roughly know where this is going. Danny is not going to get executed or anything like that. She's the plot armoriest of plot armors. Hers is one of the thickest there is. Um, but I am. But that doesn't mean it's there's no tension because there's still curiosity and how this is going to happen, what she's going to do. The 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 who is kind of set, but the why, the where, the how, that's all still up in the air, and I'm still. Very interested to see how they're going to do that. Of course, Drogon is going to be heavily involved one way or another because they're not impressed by her titles at all. <laughs> Something Danny does a lot is she stands there calmly and courageously and tells people who she is, and they just don't care. <laughs> so this giant Kalasar, it could be her method of dealing with the Sons of the Harpy. That's what we talked about to lead in this section. If Varus and Tyrion cannot do it, well, it, we hear in this episode they set it up that the Unsullied could easily retake Astapor or Yunkai, but holding it is another matter. It's like whack-a-mole. They could go take one slaver city. Meanwhile, the one they just left starts going back to its old ways. Go to that, go back there, and then Yunkai, you can't, they don't have enough men to hold these things down to guard all the places and keep them in line. They just don't have enough men. But if Danny has this Uber massive Kalasar, well, manpower is just not an issue anymore. Controlling them and making sure they don't just sack the city and be Dothraki all over everything, that might be a problem, but that's a different kind of issue. So that could also deliver massive destruction to the slaver. She may just decide to wipe them out and say, all right, I, I can't deal with this, so I'm just going to just destroy it all. I don't know if that's what she wants to do, but that might be the end result, because again, if she can't control the Dothraki, that's what they'll do. Now, traditionally, this is where some people think this wouldn't work. Traditionally, the calls leave the slavers alone so that they have someone to sell slaves to. You don't destroy the market that gives you money for the goods that you take all over. That, that's kind of shooting yourself in the foot. But if Danny is this savior slash prophet, this, this being that's been told to her coming or his coming in their minds, I'm sure, 
is going to unite all the Kalasars. Well, this little tradition of leaving the slavers alone is pretty small in the in the scheme of things compared to their you know their religious beliefs. So if she's given the orders, and if they, she's given the orders, they've already moved past tradition on one thing, which is being led by a woman is not what they're used to. Not what they're you know that's a very patriarchal culture. So if they're already following a woman, then I don't think breaking with the slavers is that's nothing compared to to these other things. So. This is, uh, this is where it's headed, I think. And it's going to be interesting to maybe see all this on screen. Are we going to see this just... How are they going to show this? This massive, massive Kalasar. That'll be some nice CGI work. I wonder if we'll see that this year or at the end of the year, maybe. She'll be leaving base Dothrak with this gigantic army. That'll be neat to see. Maybe we won't see it till next year. But I think we'll be seeing it... I think we might see it this year. But maybe not till next year. Okay. That's all for Danny for now. We've got a lot to cover. Got to keep moving. So let us move on to Bravos. We'll stay in Essos and go a bit back closer to Westeros without going all the way. Yuck boy, talk to us about the continuing adventures of Arya in training. Yeah, it's been quite slow for Arya so far over the past two episodes. Basically, she's been beaten in the face a few times and that's it. <laughs> um, this time, they used a training montage this is usually thought of as very cliche in kind of filmmaking circles, I think, and perhaps poor storytelling. And something that perhaps belongs in the Rocky era. But <laughs> having said that, in this instance, I really liked the way it was done. And I was really glad to see Aya finally making some progress. I don't think the montage came off as cliche at all. The music was really brilliant here. I thought it it really made the scene and it was very stirring and it made everything come together pretty well. And I'm in fact really glad they did it like this. And of course, it was great to see Aya finally get the better of the waif in that fight. Yeah, and it was like the second she got the better of the waif in that fight, the waif's like, all right, my work is done here. She walks off and Jake and takes over. It was like they were waiting for her to finally block that staff blow and get in a hit of her own. <laughs> um, I totally agree with you about the music, by the way. Music music is something that I really love. I haven't looked up, as I indicated, with that fire and blood motif thing we talked about earlier. I haven't paid close attention to the titles of these songs. I'm very keyed in on hearing them and the way they affect me emotionally during these scenes and what they add. But I, I, I guess I need to be paying more attention to what some of these songs are called and because that might clue in what the what they're trying to communicate in some situations. I thought that one thing they could have done better is instead of that music, they could have used the final countdown, you know? Because, <laughs> you know, for our... That, of course, that's always the perfect montage music. You can't ever do better than that. But uh, give, this was the best second choice possible. <laughs> uh, part of the... Prior to the actual fighting part of the montage, we saw her doing some other things, learning to use her sense of smell, you know, doing the wafting thing. And we get reminded of something that's really, really hard to keep track of, even for people like us who are really deep in the material and the fandom. And that's reminding ourselves of who knows what. We know what we know about the story, but what each individual character knows about other characters and what they know about the plot lines tells you quite a bit about what they're going to do, what their motivations are etc. And there's differences in the book to show as to what these characters' perceptions are and what they know. For example, what the, in this case, Arya doesn't know much of anything about what's happening with her own family. She doesn't even, she doesn't really know about Bran and Rickon. She doesn't know about Sansa. In the 
books, she she hears about Brandon Rickon when she's in the cave with the Brotherhood Without Banners. But if I remember correctly, she doesn't hear that in the show. So she has no idea at all. She's in the dark more than any of the other Starks as to the fate of the rest of their family. So that's pretty interesting. And it's a good thing to keep in mind as in terms of what characters know and how that affects their attitude and their outlook in general. Uh, a big part of the scene was how she feels about certain characters such as the Hound. She also refuses to admit that Mary Trant was on her list and gets away with it, which is proof that she's getting good. It's part of the montage. It's not just about the fighting and about how she wields a staff blind, but it's also how good she is at lying. And she's starting to lie to them, and it's working. We also have a thought here. Uh, a, tw a Twitter user whose name I couldn't find. I went to look for this before the episode and couldn't find it, so I apologize for not giving you credit for this idea. But I think this is a cool thought. It's a theory on we've been grasping at straws, both in book and show, for how Arya is going to get back into the main plotline, how she's going to get back to Westeros. This stuff is all... It's, it's, she's basically the most detached from... As terms of a major character from all the action with the other character. She's the most out of the loop, you could say. This idea, of course, it only applies to how it could play out in the show. It certainly isn't going to work for the books because it's already happened in the books in a different way. And that's that in A Feast for Crows, we know that Jake and Hagar infiltrates the Citadel. We see that from the opening, from the prologue of A Feast for Crows. We, we, that's revealed to us. Now... What if Arya takes over that role? What if Arya goes to the Citadel in place of Jaqen to do, you know, to find the book, the Death of Dragons, or whatever else Jaqen is doing there? That's a topic for, you know, we've explored in other places. We can't really get into that specifically here. But basically the idea of Jaqen is there. Maybe Arya takes over that role. Do you guys, you guys think that's possible? Or is that just maybe, is there, is there some problems with that? It would be cool for her to see Sam. But yeah, I think that when, maybe one of the best things about that would be that she would be able to interact with Sam um, because she does, you know, in the books, meet Sam and Bravo. So it would allow them to show that. Yes. That, Forgot yeah. to say that. That's huge. Yeah. yeah. And that, of course, they don't know. Who he, they don't. She doesn't know who he is and he doesn't know who she mm -hmm. is. And, and maybe maybe that'll be they'll keep that and they don't know who each other is. But if the name Jon Snow comes up, then ooh, then they might get to talking. <laughs> And who knows what would happen from there. But as much as this scene was, uh, you know, progressing Arya's arc big time compared to the first two episodes, we still don't know where it's going. We still have a lot to go. And it's still very much in the setup phase of what we, I think we expect the rest of the way, the season for her. So I think we should move on. Let's go to King's Landing. And let's talk about a very creepy scene Kyburn and the Little Birds. Interesting that the Little Birds come into it as we see Kevin causing trouble for Cersei somewhat, or a lot, on the small council. Remember that Kevin is Hand of the King, something that kind of sneakily happened on the show. It's, it's, uh, he's, he's regent in the books, whereas Mace Tyrell is Hand of the King. Of course, Mace Tyrell is also a much different character. Kevin's fairly similar to his book version from what we've seen. He's a little harsher with Cersei, but fairly similar. Let's talk about Kyburn first. Wow, he's creepy. He's got that nice guy creepiness down pat, doesn't he? Yes, he does. Someone ought to warn those kids about taking candied plums from creepy necromancers. <laughs> yeah, or taking anything from or creepy <laughs> necromancers. <laughs> Definitely not candy, but yeah. 
The children asked some important questions, some telling questions, like, will Lord Varys come back? And Kyburn's like, no, I think he's wrong. <laughs> I think Varys will come back, but <laughs> we'll have to see about that. And here's another interesting part. We hear, how's your mother's jaw? And I think this is, and, and this, this kid's eye is looking better, Kyburn points out. And I think this is related to the killing of the drunk man by Gregor. We thought this was Cersei ordering Gregor to do it, but now it seems like this was Kyburn's doing. And it was his way of, of winning these little kids over to his side to get things from them, to make them spies, is to take care of their problems. And this kid's problem was he had an abusive dad who beat him and his mother. Very interesting. What, what else do you think, Yoke Boy? Talk to us in general about book-to-show versions of Little Birds and, and some other observations regarding the scene in general. Okay, the obvious difference in the books, changed for an obvious reason, is that the Little Birds are mute. They cannot talk. And I can obviously see why they've changed this. It would have been really difficult on screen if they were mute. They couldn't have communicated. So I think we can give them a pass for changing that one. And yeah, Kyburn's kind of helping these kids in order to win them over, isn't he? And giving them these treats like it's Halloween. And, and he actually says to Cersei, they, they're your little birds now, your grace. So Cersei now has more weapons to try and change the balance of power in King's Landing against the faith. First of all, there's Sir Gregor, and now there's these little birds. It's quite a strange army that, that Cersei is getting together. Yeah, he can't... Kyburn can't infiltrate the faith with Sir Gregor, but he can... But little kids... High Sparrow's all about helping out the poor and the needy, and he, I mean, he's a, he's a man of the common people. And little, little you know, downtrodden kids can sneak right in there and, and fit right in with that whole group and bring back things to Kyburn. You know, it's interesting, one thing Kyburn can offer that Varus couldn't is medical care for these kids. I mean, maybe Varus had a way to offer it, you know, indirectly, but the fact that Kyburn can offer that maybe gives him a bit of a leg up. I don't expect he's as clever as Varus by any means. But he has maybe an advantage in winning these kids over. Of course, in the books, they're slaves. They're slave kids that Illyrio provides. And they're trained from a very young age. They don't need to be won over. They're just kind of bred this way. They're taken as infants. So it's a, it's a bit of a different situation. But both versions are extremely creepy. But I'm also glad that we're seeing that explored. We're seeing how that whole thing works. I thought the show handled it pretty well. Uh, I like also love the moment of all the little kids just staring at Sir Gregor. Like, uh, and they're like, oh, he's... He's a friend. <laughs> it's like, yeah, this is the kind of friends that, that Kyburn keeps. Little kids and undead monsters. Yeah. So let's talk about the small council. Kevin and Olena versus Jamie and Cersei. Kind of a head-to-head there with Pycelle and, and Mace kind of on the periphery there with Gregor overshadowing everything. Pycelle mentions Lord Commander Sir Gerald as we did before. Yeah, Barris. Barristan was evidently not on the small council in the show, I'm pretty sure. So it's not an automatic thing in show canon there. Yeah, definitely. Jorah and Barristan discussed that. I think it was in season four, probably, when Barristan is... Jorah's worried that Barristan knows that he's been spying on Danny, So he confronts him. He's like, hey, so doesn't the Lord Commander usually sit on the council? And the show, it's different than the books. The books, yes, always. Even Barristan sat on the small council. But Robert, show Robert didn't want Barristan on his small council because he was Eris's 
You know, man. So that, that, that's a fitting way to explain it. Jamie <laughs> talks about sending Sir Gregor in just, just like a tank. Send him into the, into the sept and just clean house versus hundreds of guys. That's a bit much. But he also mentions that this is one trial by combat I'd like to see. As we said at the beginning, yes, please. Uh, Jamie tries to point out to the small council, he's playing, it's sort of like good Lannister, bad Lannister. Jamie comes in and tries to reason with him. He says, hey, look, these are problems that all of us need to face. And hey, I have, I, Jamie Lannister, have a compelling argument that I belong in this council. Cersei has no such compelling argument. Olena calls her out for not being the queen. Kevin says, yeah, we can't, you can't, we can't make you leave, but you can't make us stay. Not unless you're going to have that thing murder us all. Is he? <laughs> or is she? She might. <laughs> maybe not just, maybe not all of them, but maybe murder them all. And Gregor will do one or two of them. And the little birds will, will kill Kevin and et cetera. What do you think, uh, Lady Gawain? What do you think about that? Well, yeah, I think they're setting up the events of the Kevin Dance with Dragons epilogue. Um, pro you know, probably going to play out somewhat differently, obviously without Varys being involved. But I think the end result will be either, you know, sharpened conflict between the Tyrells and the Lannisters, which is what we expect in the book, um, and also obviously dead Kevin and dead Pycelle. But in the absence of Varys's plotting, the show could actually take it a different way, and you know, maybe it, that's the thing that forces them to work together oh okay that's interesting yeah and the you wonder last season we theorized that it would be Littlefinger that that took the place of, of Varys had killed off Kevin but now it's quite clearly going to be Kyburn uh, so that settles that Littlefinger still hasn't made an appearance so we'll have to keep waiting for him Let's talk about Tommen and the High Sparrow another important scene from the this the stuff at King's Landing I have always been a big fan of Jonathan Price, and he just continues to steal scenes with his creepy, fatherly, zealotous just combination of, and his just cleverness and the way he makes his arguments and the way he speaks to people and the way he just diffuses situations and, and sidesteps things that come at him. It's really quite good. He's really, really sinking his claws into Tom, and he's really just showing Tommen, he speaks to him like a grandfather, talks to him, levels with him, keeps him from being upset, deflects his anger, really just bringing him in. You know, I think it's really clever how he relates Cersei's best quality to the divine rather than he kind of takes it away from her and gives it to the gods and says, no, that's not her. That's the, it's a wonderful thing, but that's a gift from the gods. That's, that's not a human thing. And I, I just furthers this notion that the High Sparrow is going to try to steal Tommen's influence and try to rule through him a bit. And maybe he's, that seems to be what he's doing with Marjorie as well. So, and he also guilts him a little bit with the old, I never had a mother. <laughs> so he tries to, you know, touch on Tommen's heartstrings there. And he knows that Tommen's, you know, he's a sweet kid. And that's going to work against him as a king. So what do you think, Yoke Boy? Give me some give me your thoughts on this whole scene and what the High Sparrow's doing. Yeah, I think you can see a twofold method of indoctrination coming from the High Sparrow. He's very polite and affable, somewhat like Kyburn in this respect, with this grandfatherly, you know, harmless appearance. 
But he also has his network of mean scepters and religious fanatics at his disposal. This means that he can really charm people and present as a likeable and trustable man to deliver his message. But he still has menace and threat behind him in his corner and he's really manipulating people the whole time. So it's kind of like a good cop, bad cop routine from him and his people, I think. And this scene here is all about his charm and we get to see once again how kind of well he communicates and he disarms his would-be opponents in in the process. Uh, yeah, and that's how I think he operates. He, he's great at disarming people. It's really well done and it's one of the things that I give the show a lot of credit for because almost none of this dialogue is in the books and we don't we don't see scenes with Tommen and the High Sparrow in the books not talking to each other. I mean, Tommen's still, you know, he's just, he's younger in the book. He's, you know, he still loves to stamp papers with his stamp and he loves his kittens and he, he wants to ban beats. I mean, he's adorable, but he's, he's nowhere near this Tommen in terms of maturity. So it's a whole different thing. So the show is kind of working on, in its own realm there and I think they're doing a really good job with this, with this dialogue and with this character. The North. The center of most of the action so far this season. There's quite a bit happening. It seems like the North has taken up about half of all the screen time. I haven't actually done the math, but it just feels that way because so much time has been spent at the Wall. Plus, we have this whole stuff with Ramsey and Brienne and Theon, Sansa, and Podrick as well. So some of that's going to kind of come together and coalesce. But for now, it's split into different locations. Umber given the straight talk. This I like this actor comes in shooting, you know, kind of comes up firing away, talking to Ramsey like he's an equal, you know, not afraid of him at all. Knows that he's got some power and Ramsey isn't just going to, you know, cut his head off or something like that. He talks about how much he hates wildlings, kind of talks down to Rickard, talks down to rather Harold Carstark, talks about how, yeah, the wildlings could take Winterfell if Jon Snow's leading them, pushes Ramsey more towards this conflict with Jon Snow refuses to take an oath and of course the brutal reveal Rickon Osha and what appears to be Shaggy Dog's head surprisingly as blatant and blunt as this seems to be there is a lot of movement towards thinking this is some sort of trick so we've gone from hoping it's fake Rickon Frickon as we called it like Faria or Fagon to Trickon which is an even cooler little name, I think. So, Lady Gwen, explain the trick-on theory for everybody. <laughs> okay, we're going to give the old northern conspiracy perspective here. Uh, because this could be part of a conspiracy uh, setting Ramsay up for a fall. You know, we talked about possible deception last week. Um, sadly, this wasn't fake Rickon. But uh, Umber's speech really could be a case of the Lord doth protest too much, which is an old GNC catchphrase. <laughs> the bit about his father was especially unconvincing. Uh, another thought I saw on Reddit earlier today was, you know, how, how much does it make sense to um, sort of, if you're trying to keep the wildlings and Jon Snow from coming south, you put Rick on... <laughs> Like kind of on a pedestal and be like, look, we've got your little brother. It's almost like a come here, Jon Snow. So, you know, that could be a, a part of a plot uh, in this 
thought process. Right, because Roos talks about how if you go against the Night's Watch, you bring the, you unite the whole North against them. Maybe exactly. that's what this, this Umber is trying to get Ramsey to do just that. Yeah, to get everybody now against them, you know, so... But what about the problems with this theory? <laughs> there, there are problems. I mean, I, I, my, the way I was thinking it, you know, Rickon could kind of be like a Trojan horse for the Umbers. It's a way for them to infiltrate the inner circle. Their expectation might be that um, they're going to be there to protect Rickon, which I think is possibly a um, little, you know, over. If if this is a true thing, that would maybe be a mistake on their part. It seems like a dangerous game to play with Rickon's life. The the Wolf's Head, let's talk about that for a minute. You know, lots of fans, show watchers, and book readers have noticed that the head seems quite a bit smaller than the Grey Wind Head. You know, I've seen some screenshot comparisons and, you know, it does look smaller. Could be a perspective thing. But ultimately, I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's we're going to get to the same place, whether this is a plot by the Umbers that goes badly wrong or whether the Umbers have really uh, gone over to the Boltons, we're going to get to the same place that I expect we will in the books, and that is dead Rickon, dead Shaggy Dog. No, <laughs> Yeah, that is the big part of this that, that maybe doesn't work. It's like you, it's, you're putting Rickon in too much danger. I mean, we know what Ramsey's capable of and what he's likely to do. Now, he can't kill Rickon outright or he doesn't work as bait anymore, but you figure that... He could do horrible things to him. Now, the thing about this that makes me say, well, consider it from this angle. What if it was Rickon's idea? What if he volunteered for it? The danger to him, if he's willing to take that on, then it makes more sense. The Umber suggesting it, just if he's truly a loyal vassal, just no. That's He's like, how about you go, how about we turn you over to Rickon? I mean, turn you over to Ramsey and just go from there. You know, like, uh-uh. But if Rickon himself floats the idea, then I could see it. Maybe, now, I know some of you are out there probably just thinking, no, guys, you're just grasping at straws. This looks bad. I kind of agree, but I but there is a lot of things that make me hesitate. For one thing, the existence of the sort of fake plot and the GNC in the books makes me think that they'll do something similar in the show. Uh, Ashea wanted, had some thoughts on this as well. She's a fairly big believer in the trick-on idea, She's points to Rickon and Osha's muted reactions. They say nothing. They don't, they're not defiant. They're not, he doesn't act like Rickon, what you would expect Rickon to act. Rickon's a talkative wild child. You know, you'd think he would be defiant. You think he would yell or something, you know? So maybe that's just evidence. Maybe that's just reaching, but maybe it's evidence that he's just keeping quiet because it's all part of the plan. And I don't know. So what what about you, Yoke Boy? I think you're on the other side of things. It to me the idea that this is a conspiracy does have a lot of problems, I think. In the handing over of Rickon, as you've mentioned, he would be the Umber's crown jewel. And I find it hard to believe they'd hand him over to, you know, somehow infiltrate Winterfell. The Umbers could argue to Ramsay that Rickon needs to be unharmed to lure Sansa back, I guess. And I hope that there's a conspiracy, really. I really do hope, but I'm just struggling to see it. And I, I do agree that Shaggy Dog's head did seem small. But I think we have to acknowledge the possibility that they could have just made it small or something like that. And things in Winterfell are as they appear. And that the Umbers have genuinely given up Rickon to Ramsay 
meaning he's in some deep trouble now and could end up being flayed and God knows what else. There's another aspect of this that I want to raise, and that is the disappearance of Great John on the TV show. We've talked about this a few times. Basically, what happened was the actor left at the end of season two, and they just didn't recast him because he didn't exactly have a huge role to play. And he's a huge man, so it's kind of hard to recast him. You know, you got to have another large guy. You saw how many different mountains they had, and they, none of them really looked very similar. It was a bit confusing, probably. So they just dispensed with that confusion, decided they could do without him, which I think was probably the smart choice. He's He dies off screen. It's clear that he's dead, and in fact, this Umber even says that he would have killed his own father if he hadn't died. This is this is Small John, as confirmed by the credits, that he would have killed his own father if he hadn't. Is that really what this Umber was saying? That's just more, to, to some people, that's evidence that this is a plot, a plan, because how could an Umber, the son of Great John, the mo, one of the most vocally loyal, outgoingly loyal, you know, Rob's number one guy... His son is such a scumbag, really? Is that really who this Great John raised? Is, did, did the apple really fall that far from the tree? Well, maybe. It wouldn't be that strange, but it's another, you know, argument for the possibility that this is, that Trickon is for real. So that's, uh, that's just something we'll have to wait on. I'm sure we'll find out soon. They might give us, they might clue us in next week one way or the other as to if there's something else going on here. Maybe they give us a hint. But we'll see. We'll just got to wait. Keep those fingers crossed. Hopefully Rickon makes it out somehow. I have more. I have definitely, this is one of those things that I think is, like Lady Gwynn said, we may end up in the same place by the end. But I do think that there's going to be some significant differences in book to show and how they get there. Obviously, Rickon falling into Ramsey's hands in the, in the books, I don't really see that happening. It could, for sure. It would just, I don't see it happening. But, I, you know, it could. So, but that's just an example of how things seem to be going in a different direction, even if they end up in the same place. Okay, let's talk about the episode as a whole. Then we'll do our credits and we'll come back after the credits to talk about the next time on, the what we expect going forward. And we've got a few more tidbits from that to talk about some of these plot lines, including Rickon, including Danny and some other things. The episode itself got an 8.7 on IMDb, which is pretty high. It's uh, kind of in the upper middle for Game of Thrones episodes. Nowhere near the top, but farther from the bottom. So it's pretty good, pretty solid. If Game of Thrones has high standards for episode ratings, 8.7 would be really high for a lot of shows. But for Game of Thrones, it's just pretty good. So that's another, that's a good thing. What do you guys think? So on the 10-point scale, Yoko, we'll start with you. What do you give this episode? You gave, I believe, an 8 to the last one, if I recall correctly. Yeah, I think I'll give this one a 7.5. Okay. I, I really enjoyed it. it. It did have a couple of slow scenes that kind of held it back. But, you know, I really enjoyed the Tower of Joy and thought altogether it was good entertainment. Yeah, maybe maybe one or two less Sam vomits. <laughs> 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 loses a, loses point two for excessive Sam vomiting. Lady Wynn, what about you? What were you giving? I think you gave last week an 8.5, if I recall correctly. Uh, yes, I did. And I'm kind of going to mirror Yoke Boy because I'm going to give this one an 8. So going down by half a point um, for the exact same reason because a couple of the scenes did seem a bit to drag. But, um, you know, you have to give it pretty high points for Tower Joy, which overall, extremely favorable. Yeah, myself. I watched the episode. I've watched the episode all the way through four times now, and I watch, But I watched the Tower of Joy scene 
probably a dozen times, <laughs> freeze-framed it, looked for detail, looked at the, the, the men with Ned, looked at all what they were wearing and all their armor and everything. One guy had a helmet, one guy had a shield, there was the Dornish guy. You know, I wonder if uh, the one guy killed by Sir Gerald Hightower wasn't meant to be uh, the... Which one would it have been? The Maybe the Riswell... Anyway, it's hard to figure if they even cared about who was who there, but I, I like thinking about how they may have been used in that sense and which two might have been cut. In any case, I'll give the episode, actually going to break ranks a little and give this one an 8.5. I liked it about as much as last week's, even though I think last week's had higher highs, uh, but I like, there was just a lot of really good moments, a lot of really good subtleties. And it's just funny because I was just talking earlier in the season about how they don't do a lot of subtleties. And I'm just finding that I was a little wrong in some of those. But I still don't think the blood spatter meant anything. But clearly they're sneaky with the music as we showed this episode. So, you know, they're not going to give big reveals through subtlety. But they are, They I will color what I said before by saying they will give clues via subtlety. And they will not give book nods via subtlety just like they did with the little sunbeam on Arthur's sword which was a little nod to Dawn so a lot of that stuff I there were a lot of nods to the books in this episode for me that's where the extra half point comes from that's why it's for me as strong as last week's even though I know I'm in the minority there maybe I'm just trying to be different <laughs> no I'm just kidding if I had gone first I would have given it an 8 but since I went last I gave it an 8.5 no I'm just kidding <laughs> I, I feel good about it I feel happy about it I enjoyed watching it all those times and that's that. So, everybody, thanks for listening. We're going to move on to our Patreon credits. If you do not want to be spoiled on the next ons, we're going to talk about what we learned about Episode 4 so far, as well as combining it with some preseason trailer knowledge, fitting all that together, connecting some dots. We'll have a few more cool conclusions. But if you don't want to be spoiled on that, we'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in. So we'll see you next time. want to thank our Patreon supporters, starting with... Our First Lord, Hand of the King, Cash Craig, the Black Pupil, Lord Jim, the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog, and Warden of the West, Lord George Stormsville, the Cunning, Lord of the Chiliad, and Warden of the East, Lord John Reed of Castle Woodbridge, the Lord Borealis, the Light of the North, and Warden of the North. Newly added Lady Kelly McMath of Covington, Lady of the Villa Hills, or is that Via Hills? Either way, and Crescent Springs, and Warden of the South. Rory the Rogue, Archer Extraordinaire, and our History of Westeros King Beyond the Wall started subjugating the men of the Frozen Shore on Monday. Still working on them. They're tough. And weird, really. The Small Council. Lord James Inkblade, the Scholar Knight and Master of Whisperers. Lord Robert Jacobs is our Master of Coin. Rosie the Clever is our Master of Laws. And Lord James Tuttle is our Master of Ships. Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naki is the Alpha Patron. Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell is Breaker of the Second Stone. Lord Skip of the Velt is Lord of Castle Ganges. Cabeth the Unfrozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light. Mary Meg is Lady of the Bloody Stepstones. Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Breadfort. Alicia Everlasting of the Green Blood is Lady of Desert Rose. Jeffrey the Unflinching is Lord of Sand Lake. Lord Greybay is of the Queen City. Lord Ryan is of Castle Stonegate and Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen de Havilland is of is of the Devil's Hand Keep. Lord Brandon Slate is the Norse Hammer and Harbinger of the Old Gods. Lady Bram is Light of Winter's Garden, Beacon of the Northwest. And Lord Mark Joseph is the Snow in Winterfell. Also thanks to Sir 
Troy the Steady, our King's Justice and wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. Lord Commander Dubbington, the Red Bear and the commander of the History of Westeros Kingsguard. And our History of Westeros Night's Watch is commanded by Lord Commander George the Golden, backed up by First Ranger Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Greenshield. Now, about half of those names were chosen by the patron supporter themselves, and about half of them were created by me on the request of said patron supporters. So if you want to get one just like that or similar, you know where to go, historyofwesteros.com. Patreon links are on the right. Whatever you feel is appropriate, support the show. Now, speaking of that, before we get back to this, recent news. Most of you have probably seen this already. If not, George has released the Ariane 2 chapter on his website. That's been out for a while. He's read it at cons, but it's now being officially released. Transcribed versions were out there before. Now it's the official version. It's not very different from the transcribed version, but there's a few... Grammatical changes, really nothing of substance. But it's a great chapter, highly recommend it. If you're not aware of it, go find it. Uh, it's all over the internet. Just go to George's website. That's the, probably the quickest way to get there. So let's talk about the next time on. There are some interesting clues from the next on. There's always good stuff in there. Sometimes they trick us, but sometimes they don't. Now, first of all, a little shout-out to watcher Philip Eklund for pointing out that Game of Thrones' official YouTube channel always has the next-ons, because I know in the UK and, and probably other countries, there's just that's not part of the broadcast. They don't give you the next-on Game of Thrones, but it's always on YouTube. You can always find it there. So, folks, if you don't get those, now you know where to find them. Okay. Regarding Rickon, since that's where we finished, we'll stay there for now to finish that up. We've got a couple more thoughts that we couldn't give during the regular part of the episode because it's spoilery. We got an interview from Art Parkinson. Well, this is not good news. Uh, so was it actually Shaggy, he was asked. Uh, yeah, I'd say so. Rickon Stark himself, actor Art Parkinson, told the Huffington Post in an interview. The actor continued... It was a little bit disappointing because, you know, looking at the dogs we had on set and that you'd never really get to hang with, out with them again. When I read the Shaggy Dog was dead, I was definitely a little upset. So that's bad, but, however, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't change everything. It doesn't totally set our expectations because they misled us about John quite a bit in the offseason. And Owen Teal, the actor who plays Alistair Thorne, straight up misled us about Alistair Thorne and John coming to an understanding. That's what he said. I mean, is that the understanding that you're going to die now? Like, yeah, I'm going to die now. That's the understanding. That's an understanding. Yeah, yeah. that's like the Night's Watch standing behind Alicia Zorn. I mean, it's that same sort of tricky language. And the other thing, arguing against it's being a trick, not only all those bodies on the crosses burning in front of Ramsey, as many as six or seven of those before whatever this big battle is going to be at the end, but we know that Ramsey's at that big battle. We see him, you know, leading his men, so to speak. So if this trick happens, well, it's not going to kill Ramsey, whatever it is, at least not right away. Maybe it'll happen during the battle. Maybe there's a signal and some of the men loyal, supposedly loyal to Ramsey turn and attack the Boltons. We can only hope. Or maybe Ramsey finds out about the trick and that's, you know, the Umbers and all of them who are in on the trick on those burning crosses. Oh, jeez. I mean, that's kind of what we get for the pink letter, right? The pink letter in the book tells us that Ramsey caught Mance. He caught yeah. him. He caught the women. He skinned them, and he's tortured Mance, and he figured it all out. Well, he figured a lot of it out anyway. So, yeah, if there, that wouldn't be a big difference from the books. They would be kind of following the book plot line a bit there. So, ah, <laughs> scary, scary, scary. So, 
We also see uh, Sansa, Brienne, and Podrick admitted, admitted into some castle. It really looks like Castle Black. Uh, it looks almost identical. Would you agree with that, Lady Gwynn? Yeah, I, I went and watched, you know, I wasn't sure because you just see the kind of the back, what's behind them as they're going through a door. So I went back and watched the clip of Stannis leaving Castle Black from last season. And it's the same background. There's a, there's a little hill, snow-covered road. So it's, it's pretty obvious that that's where they are. Okay, so we know he's going to get the only... The only question is whether John will still be there when that happens. I'm assuming so, but maybe not. Maybe they'll just miss each other like ships, Starks in the night. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> that would fit. <laughs> <laughs> now, finally, uh, we catch sight of Littlefinger. He's telling little Lord Royce, who's standing there with a caged falcon. It seems like the kind of thing that the Lord of the Area would be doing, playing with a falcon. Uh, and he's telling Lord Royce and little Lord Aaron that Sansa has escaped Winterfell, is you know not safe from the Boltons. So that sets up what we kind of expected, the Vale army coming north. And with Littlefinger, maybe he's still trying to angle for Winterfell for himself, you know, living out his childhood dreams, all that. Maybe that's what we're seeing for, or seeing set up, rather. Uh, very possible there. So, very curious to see how Littlefinger fits into this whole thing and whether he survives the season or not. There's that preseason trailer, remember, where he looks, he's standing out in the snow and he looks concerned like something bad's about to happen. He doesn't look in control. He looks a little scared, which is pretty much never how he looks. He always looks, he's got that cocky, smug look, like he knows something that nobody else does. Because he does know a lot of things that nobody else does, especially about his own motivations. Uh, so that's another wait and see, another developing plot line. We're good to see that start to circle back as we've been wondering what's been going on with Littlefinger. Now, Yoke Boy, talk to us about Theon. Yeah, Theon arrives at the Iron Islands to Yara's scorn, and this seems to prove that when Theon was talking of home, it wasn't Winterfell, but it was, in fact, the Iron Islands, as I think we all suspected last time. This really leaves big questions about what Theon's role is going to be in the upcoming King's Moot. Uh, remember, in the books, he obviously wasn't present there. Yeah, I don't expect it to be so different that he ends up winning somehow. That would be, that'd be a little crazy. So maybe we see him participate and lose to Euron, and then it goes from there in some other way. It's really, yeah, it's, it's really kind of hard to see how they're going to run with this. But I think we do expect to see Asha heading to to Danny at some point, taking Victorian's role based on what we saw in the preseason trailers, which was, if you missed it, Asha seen making out with a tattooed woman, a woman with a t facial tattoo, and it's the same tattoo that the women of Volantis have if they're prostitutes. So, so that seems to be a giveaway there. We also have, which is, by the way, more evidence that Theon doesn't win the King's Moot. You don't expect Theon to send Asha out there. Yara, excuse me. <laughs> Asha Yara. So we see Olena again. She's talking about how Marjorie is apparently going to get the same punishment Cersei got, which she says that cannot happen. Cersei agrees, unless there's some clever editing there, but I think she's agreeing. Uh, which I think means that I choose violence is coming, which I can't wait for that. <laughs> oh, I can't wait for the violence. It's as if there isn't enough of that in this show. <laughs> no, it's really not just, it's not the violence I'm looking forward to. It's the specific violence. Robert Strong. Oh, he's still the mountain in the show. 
Which, you know, we, we didn't really talk about that, why he's the mountain and not Robert Strong. It kind of makes sense. I, I don't have a problem with it either way. You know, in the books, they think about how they all kind of know who he is. Kevin thinks about, oh, I know who that is. I bet Mace does too. But uh, in the show, he's just Gregor, because why not? Why not be Gregor? It's clearly Gregor. I mean, who else looks like that? And everybody knew he was there at King's Landing and got poisoned. I mean, it's just, yeah. So I, I'm fine with that. How about you guys? Is that you guys okay with that slight change there? Oh, yeah, it makes perfect sense, because otherwise I think it would lend to a lot of confusion if they suddenly started calling him by some different name. They've already had three different actors play the role. They don't need to go changing his right. name also, right? <laughs> so we've also got Tyrion trying to assuage some delegation of somebody. I don't know who that was. But several people are complaining, like, when is she coming back? And Tyrion's just lying, saying, soon. He doesn't know. He didn't get a raven from Jorah and Dario saying, uh, at the Cal, we found all the Kalasars. We're about to go in. We're about to sneak in, rescue her. We'll be back in a week, in a, in a couple days. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think so. But so things are boiling over a bit in, in Marine. That seems to be where things are headed. Uh, Varus is trying to keep things under control. Tyrion is doing his thing. We'll have to see what happens there. We're definitely seeing Dario and Jorah fighting, not with each other. Well, maybe with each other. I don't think so. Boy, that would be suicidal. They go, they, they finally, they try to infiltrate the Dothraki and then they end up fighting each other. <laughs> that would be pretty dumb. But it does appear that they do something. They, we see them, we see them in action scenes. We see them fighting. So I think they're going to sneak in and try to rescue her and what'll happen? I don't know. Hard to say, but I really can't see it fully succeeding that's just a bit much to swallow these two guys sneaking into the entire dothraki race is there <laughs> and they're gonna somehow infiltrate this and bring danny out that i don't i don't know about that so we'll just have to see what happens there again a lot of we'll have to wait and see because this is the early part of the season and a lot of this is set up so, with our remaining time, let's talk about our worries of the week. I think we can safely leave Rickon and Osha still on that list. We had Dario on that list before. That hasn't really changed. Maybe it's uh, coming to a head. Maybe we'll finally see that resolve one way or the other. Kevin, Olena, Pycelle, and Mace. Maybe they're a little worried. Maybe we should be worried about them. Pycelle and Kevin, most of all, given what we know about the books. Pycelle's farts are not going to save him. <laughs> that was a strange thing, wasn't it? I wonder if they'll have Gregor kill Pycelle, given that they've shown a kind of weird tension between them with that strange fart. That's a good point. They're kind of sending it that way, aren't they? Yeah, and in, and in the book, he gets his head caved in. You know, Gregor's already caved in a head or two. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that, that could be interesting. So... Uh, out of those characters, well, Kevin's doomed. We know that's going to happen. Mace, I don't think he's going to die anytime soon. He probably will eventually. I guess that wouldn't be a surprise. But I can't say I'm worried about him. Pycelle's doomed, and no one no one wants him to live, I suspect. Olena, so that leaves Olena. That, I, I do not want to see her go. You always worry about the older characters because it seems like, you know, they're more fragile or whatever. You're, uh, and Cersei, being Cersei's enemy is never good for your health. Uh, so I'm a little worried about her. I think later in the, you guys have any other care? Did I miss anyone or do you have any other thoughts on how it might go for those ones? No, I think you nailed it. Mm. Right on. That's pretty much all of them. Yeah. Def, but definitely Elena is, I think given Cersei's little speech about, you know, people capitalizing on their, um, 
you know, the weakness of House Lannister, I'd say that's got a Leonard yeah, Someone's going to, you know, it might lead to Littlefinger being outed as someone working both sides. That's just now occurring to me. Uh, yep. Yeah. Maybe Kyburn will sniff out Littlefinger's double dealings, figure out that he's been helping mm-hmm. Olena, helping, playing both sides. Like, duh, we've known that forever. But maybe Cersei will finally get wise to that and, uh, you know, we'll see what happens there. I think Lancel is probably doomed later this season. Tommen perhaps as well. Maybe that'll maybe that won't happen until next year. But they tend to want to do the deaths at the end of the season rather than the beginning of the next season because of contracts and, and, and actors coordination and all that. It's just for logistical reasons. So it's probably a safer bet to guess that he's going to die at the end of the season rather than the beginning of next. Not always the case though. Joffrey died in the beginning of a season basically. So, you know, we can't always be right on that. Um, a couple characters... We could, we could maybe have a new regular semi-reoccurring session where we talk about who is now more armored in plot. Who has had things happen that make them safe? We talked earlier in this episode about Dolorous Ed now being safe in the short term, if not for the whole season, roughly. You never know when something could change and he becomes in danger again. But he's the only Night's Watch character besides John with a name, basically, at this point at all. At all. And on the same vein, Tormund is the pretty much the only wildling. No, no, not pretty much. He's the only wildling whose name we know. For now, that means they're both pretty safe. I don't think they're gonna because if you kill one of them off, you gotta kind of you probably kind of have to replace them with something. And I don't think they want to do that. So, especially because Tormund is really popular, good actor, good role. They finally brought in some of his dick jokes, which, which were a big part of his his character in the book, making fun of John's member and, and talking about his own. I like uh, that they threw that in. Yeah. That was cool. Another one of those nods, by the way, to the books mm-hmm. there. A sneaky that one. That was good. <laughs> they, they, taught, they used the word pecker instead of member, which, yeah, whatever. That's fine. <laughs> uh, Jorah, we talked about before as well, as someone who's pretty well armored. and Well, he's armored in grayscale right now. I think that means he's... It's kind of the same thing. Something bad happens to your hand, you're safe for the short term. Just like Jamie. His hand gets cut off. Well, that means his head's not getting cut off, at least not for a while, because... Uh, that changes who he is. We got to see how that plays out. So, same thing for Jorah. Same hand, even too. Left hand, <laughs> or no, not same hand. Wrong hand. Wrong hand. My bad. Left hand instead of right hand. So, Jorah's probably safe for now. Obviously, there's characters who are almost permanently plot armored, like Tyrion, Danny, and even John. Clearly, you kill him, and he just comes back. Uh, <laughs> Bran probably isn't going anywhere anytime soon. All by himself. Uh, Sansa not going to die anytime soon. Who else? That might be it. It's like the elite, the, like the top level. They're just not dying. Not yet. By the end, all bets are off. Arya also. No way, no way she's dying anytime soon. No. Samwell, he's obviously got something to do before. Very good point. Samwell's yeah. not dying. And, you know, and obviously anyone they just introduced. Euron's not going to die in the next episode. He's not going to die in a couple episodes. He's going to... He'll probably die, but not soon. Uh, Yara, I guess she's going to stick around a while. She's got to go to Volantis. Yeah, Brienne still has to go to the Riverland. She's not going to die soon, and uh, she's a fan favorite. They, they're not going to kill her off lightly, I don't think, but they, they may do it eventually. Um, I guess there's probably some more. Y'all, feel free to send us your own thoughts on who you're worried about, who you're not worried about, who you think's going to die that you want to die, because we can't worry about characters that you hope die. Ramsey, by the way, that's another one. Ramsey might die at the end of the season, but he won't die... Between, you know, <laughs> between now and, say, episode 8. Not even, probably, nine, if he dies, it'll be in episode 9 or 10 or next season. So, anyway, that's our show for today. Thanks again, Radio Westeros. Tell everybody where to find you out there on the interwebs. 
Yeah, come and visit us and listen to our podcast at RadioWestRus.com. We'd really love it if you came and give us a chance. Thanks. Cool. Yeah, thanks, guys. Uh, Radio Westeros again, RadioWestros.com, Radio Westeros on YouTube, etc. So that is our show for today. We appreciate you tuning in. We appreciate you sticking with us for the full show. And we appreciate that you have a lot of choices in your reviews. We're glad that you are sticking with the thorough, detailed dives that we try to present to you every week. Obviously, can't be as thorough as we can with our regular episodes because we only have about two days <laughs> between the show airing and the episode coming out. But I think we covered it pretty well this time. Proud of ourselves for digging up some of these hidden details. Very proud of you all out there who sent us in emails, tweets, Facebook messages, etc. to help us give more material. Quite a few pieces of user feedback made into this episode. So if you want to write us and give us your thoughts, again, we I, rare, I can't respond very often these days. We're just so busy putting out two episodes a week, trying to stay on top of everything. So please don't take it the wrong way. Don't take it as an insult if I don't write you back. I read everything. And we incorporate as much of it as we can into the show. And we really appreciate all the feedback. This community is great. It really does. Whenever we miss something, you guys are there to point it out. And you do so in a respectful manner. And I appreciate that. So, we will be back next week. As usual, at some point this season, pretty soon, we're going to do the occasional episode where we're going to record this live. Well, it's recorded live already, but we're going to record while it's running meaning people can tune in while we're recording it and watch it we're going to set that up maybe not next week but maybe maybe for episode five we'll announce that all over social media when that happens so look out for that looking forward to it until next time valar morgulis valar reread us valar rewatch us valar see you later